0: last episode as an introduction to the podcast I would have discussed the evolution of geography as a study and then went into detail about the findings of the subject and then what it would have been used for in ancient times coming all the way to present times. In this episode I'm going to continue that discussion with population changes uh, how do, how it occurs, reasons for why it occurs, and I guess some effects of population changes, whether that be globally or uh, locally, that kind of thing. The goal of the GeoGems podcast isn't just to talk about geography. Uh, I also wanted to include issues that I would have like came across with the education system and issues in society uh, in general. As well as some good things in society because it's so easy to get caught up in things that go wrong. We kind of forget the things that actually go right. And of course things that I find interesting that could be related back to different topics in geography. And then some personal anecdotes, you know, experiences that I would have had as a student of geography. A student in general, as just a person that lives here uh, in this country, in this world. And I'm hoping that people could learn something from whatever experiences I may have. And just things that I would come across. Uh, I don't want to tell anybody what to believe or how to think. But anybody who takes this time to talk about things. You kind of just hope that, you know, it influences somebody in a good way. Whether that be they agree with you and then they see the, the... the meaning in what you're saying or it helps them to think about things differently and then find their own uh way of thinking about the other things and then you know we could all get on the same page with it even if it takes different paths to get there so yeah geogems is available to listen pretty much anywhere you can listen to our podcast for free uh outside of itunes uh that's mostly because i just i don't use iphones so Yeah, just share with somebody, listen, you know, and join the discussion in whatever way makes you feel comfortable. Why are populations not stagnant? Populations pretty much change anywhere in the world. It gets bigger, it gets smaller, uh changes are constantly happening pretty much everywhere and uh, the only difference between uh different countries is the rate in which these populations may change and of course the reasons for why things are changing and there are a lot of reasons Uh, just to give like a picture of how the human population has changed uh in a global scale in the past 100 years the global population has multiplied by six in 1900 or in the 1900s uh the population was at 1.6 billion people and by 2003 the population was 6.1 billion people in 2010 it became 6.9 by 2019 the number was 7.6 by 2020 it was 7.8 and as of right now the global population is at 7.9 billion people and some change so there's a huge jump you'd have noticed uh with our 100 year gap in the early period so the 1900s and then pretty much a gradual increase from like 2010 onwards and i was looking at like specifically the statistics for turnaround to Tobago. and you can pretty much find this on the internet like uh, on a few websites but i like to use worldometer.info i use our website for like to check up on COVID cases around the world you know for one day when we have to travel in like the next decade uh, so, they have, like, a live count population for each country, and, of course, for, like, the entire world, and they show changes throughout the year, and, like, different categories. They even have, like, a category for migrant movement, so, how many migrants you have moving in or out of a particular country. And, well, Trinidad's population is at, well, the website says 1.4, but I think it's almost 1.4, like, the higher end of 1.3 uh compared to last year which was at the lower end of 1.3 in a sense and the trend basically for Trinidad and Tobago uh would have been pretty much a 4,000 to 5,000 increase per year starting back in like I think it was 1941 or I don't have the chart open right now but yeah it was the average increase is like 4,000 to 5,000 people and like, even in a pandemic, it seems that populations are still growing. And it it, it was confusing, but I kind of, as, as a read-on, you kind of get to see why these changes are still happening. Because there was a big jump in the 20th century, and there were a, a lot of contributing factors to those things, but then pre- things pretty much kind of leveled out, in a sense. The One of the reasons, I think, for that big jump would have been people just stopped dying as much so you have to kind of remember uh, people are always being born right people are always dying unless our scientists finally cure for death nothing in that regard is ever really gonna change but even though there's always people being born the knew population could really grow is if the number of people being born is more than the number of people that are dying. Uh, back then, life expectancy was pretty low and, you know, with all the cholera and friends. Um, but with medicine kind of evolving and the invention of certain equipment, scientific equipment, like the microscope, and they would have discovered germs and... I guess doctors would have been able to treat diseases more effectively and then prolong prolong people's lives so there's this book that I like um, it's a romance novel but it's focused on its main character well one of the main characters who is a doctor a doctor she was born in the early 20th no the. <laughs> late 20th century so she's born like 1940 something I can't remember right right so she's born in the 1900s and she was one of the first female doctors of her time and it's a little science fictiony too so she's a time traveler and she time travels back to the 18th century and all her knowledge of medicine pretty much made her like a goddess in a sense but uh because of the cultural background that she would have been in as a, a woman in 18th century there was a limit to how much things she could share with people so she was torn between wanting to help people who were sick and sick with illnesses that was easily curable and then having to deal with the consequences of knowing that knowing those things because if anybody was to question her she can't say she's a doctor because back then only men were allowed to be doctors so the only alternative would be yeah she's a witch <laughs> it seems that that's the only um other explanation that people could come up with when it comes to knowing things so yes she was on this kind of seesaw in terms of like do i help them and if i help them how do i explain you know helping these people. So she kinda just decided to just go along with the whole medicine woman, traditional woman in the bush kind of thing. Uh it got her through of things. I mean, for the most part, people were question questioning her, her her knowledge. But they were it was easy to accept, okay, well maybe she's a medicine woman, you know, from the countryside and she has a lot of herbs and whatever, as opposed to she's a witch you know there were still some people who thought she was a witch but she got she got away most of it but anyway it's a great book and that was like they had a lot of different accurate historical accounts of people kind of confronting diseases that we know now were pretty much simple to cure and they were going above and beyond trying to find cures for these diseases, diseases and they just didn't have the the knowledge and the expertise to kind of explore what were causing certain things and how to fix the problem and a lot of people would die from very common illnesses because they just didn't know what it was or what they thought it was it wasn't you know so with medical advancement populations really had opportunity to thrive now that a new dreams existed sanitation became a big thing and people started to live longer uh sticking around for a few extra years and the population began to grow then there was the invention of antibiotics uh vaccinations a different protocol that they would have implemented in hospitals and stuff like quarantining and then uh things that would have helped them predict diseases like radiography and things like that that would help them to detect things earlier and then prevent it from spreading or becoming worse um and at the same time this would be the second reason for why this big jump happened there was agricultural developments so an increase in food production would have led to an increase in population right well it's also precise to be honest because uh there was this guy thomas malthus he, he was a minister, like a church minister, in Britain, and he made a claim that said that one day the population would become so big that we would run out of food, and then everybody would, you know, be doomed. Everybody, would, everybody would die, basically, and he was going off the basis of back then the population was just about 1 billion people and there was so much poverty and people were starving and that kind of thing it was hard it appeared hard for them to to feed everybody and he just kept saying that if this keeps continuing people keep having more children and more children eventually things will become so bad that they won't be able to feed themselves at all um but here we are you know almost 8 million eight billion sorry and we're still mostly feeding ourselves so um since you know he was wrong for a lot of reasons uh we can't really say for sure that one thing directly affects the other i think it's a closed loop so yes agricultural developments would influence population growth but population growth also influences agricultural development and other other people theorize the same thing. It's not a new theory. But one thing just can't exist without the other. Remember before there were settlements, as in people groups that would no longer that were no longer moving around constantly, uh, but instead they were now building permanent stationary communities uh there were still people to feed right but when they began staying in one place then they would have started planting farming they would raise animals and that kind of thing so you wouldn't need a farm if it is just passing through or you know hunting and just gathering what you need and moving on farms meant you're staying put you were Now required to domesticate certain things to keep things uh that were fruitful and abundant that would provide for your community so that that's where domestication of certain animals and props crops would have happened and it was specific to a region in terms of what grew best there and what was culturally appropriate in a sense what was known to give high yields because the goal was to feed as many people as possible, right? So they would have focused on high yield, naturally high yielding crops like cereals, uh, legumes, and then of course root vegetables. And in the last episode, we'd have mentioned the Fertile Crescent. uh in that region, uh, and many other regions, crops were very much specific to climate and uh soil type and that kind of thing. So in that region they would have focused on wheat, uh barley, things like lentils and uh chickpeas, so chana, and they would have been able to have a well balanced diet with those crops. And in other uh regions, they would have focused on things like corn, like in Mexico, uh things like cassava in South America and uh Specific greens would have been specific to to Africa, right? So things like sorghum, right? And then in North America they would have focused on sunflowers. Asia they would have focused on rice. So it showed that there was not it was there was a there was an organization to the way things were do the things were going that this agricultural development was not just about uh what machines they could use yes that was a big part of it uh but it was first focused on crops right and this made me remember something i don't know this made me remember something so i was thinking about popcorn <laughs> and you know the history of popcorn like where it came from who invented it and apparently it was like around for thousands of years especially in south america um, but then I discovered that you can pretty much pop, like, other greens. Um, like, of course, you could pop rice. You don't think of pop rice, like, rice krispies as popped rice. But, like, that's what it is. And then you could pop, uh, sorghum. And you can even pop quinoa. The greens, obviously, will be much smaller than popcorn. But it's not impossible, you know. I, I thought that was kind of cool. And then that made me remember so a time as watching a video uh there was this Trinidadian girl she was doing uh one of those taste my local snacks videos with her friends and her friends were not from trinidad and she gave them chana, you know those little packs of china eh? right so she gave them chana. and they were chana. what's that you know and she couldn't she couldn't explain to them That Chana was chickpeas and I am sitting there staring at the video thinking this is so embarrassing how do you not know that Chana and chickpeas is the same thing they had to google it and it was just it was really embarrassing (laughs) but this domestication process it was not quick and it was not easy but if you now have a larger area of land with crops that were producing higher yield than in the wild and then you had a lot of technological advances like uh animal drawn plows now you have more food that can feed a growing population then you had other farming practices that would have assisted in making it more efficient Uh, crop rotation irrigation systems uh fertilizers were introduced and then things like artificial pollination would have sped up the process and then something interesting that i found out happened was earthworms came to america All Right, there were actually no earthworms in at least specifically the northeastern region of america prior to the 17th century because of glacial movement from the last ice age uh, that would have killed pretty much all of them, along with bees and other other animals. And then when Europeans started to come into America, then they would have reintroduced earthworms into the soil. And that would have actually increased soil quality, especially in that region, because earthworms, earthworms are pretty good at fertilizing soil. Uh, they would help to like break down organic matter on the surface of the soil and then mix that in to the soil on below. And of course create little tunnels for water and air to percolate. And of course for roots to reach down further into the soil. So yeah, earthrooms coming back to America was a big, big, big player. Alright. I wish it, somebody told me how important earthrooms were as a child because I thought they were gross. I I saw one. I would kill them. Yeah. But overall. There were a lot of developments. In mainly medicine. And agriculture. And then these would have played a major, major role. In determining standard of living. And of course. Life expectancy. People who live healthier. Usually. Usually. Tend to live a much longer life. Than people who don't. So with a population of nearly 8 billion people, it kind of makes you wonder, like, where where are all these people living? That sounds like a lot of people. Um, do we even have the space? Um, we actually do, but there's some problems, right? So 71% of the Earth, the planet Earth, is covered in seawater. And of the land that is remaining 57% of that is actually considered unlivable either because of extreme climate or extreme terrain so it's either too cold it's too hot it's too dry it's too wet or it's too hilly, it's too rugged you know things like that it's inaccessible and it's unlivable uh so the actual amount of land that we have to use is 15.77 billion acres that sounds great uh eight billion of us we're actually supposed to have pretty much two acres of land for ourselves or at least almost eight almost two acres of land for ourselves right so an acre um two acres basically around eighty seven thousand square feet and that's the size of like the average football field and then like a little extra i don't want sports and uh, i just know a football field is big because i would have been on a football field at some point in my life and that seems like a fair amount of land you know i could i could live with that right but you know Things aren't so straightforward because with that, then we have to subtract some land because some of it was already being used for public things. You know, highways, roads, train tracks, subway stations, public buildings like hospitals, schools, um, energy plants, water plants, farmlands. Of course, f- freshwater storage, you know, uh, aquifers like, that reach up on land, you know, things with stations, that kind of thing, um, lakes. And then, you know, things that only rich people get to use, like golf courses and, you know, things like that. So, you ever heard the saying, um, if all of us live like Americans, then we need about 10, 10 more Earths? Well yeah, it's not an exaggeration because the average American, the average wealthy, sorry, American lives on about twenty four acres of land. <laughs> Which if we were to like measure out, you know, divide up the land that we have, they have twelve times their designated share, right? And, that just goes to show, not only are they rich hoarding money, you know, they're holding food, water, medicine, and of course, they're hoarding land. That's why um, I'm always skeptical about these these rich people giving advice about how to do things properly, you know, because there's always something that just not adding up. Uh, take, for example, our friend Thomas Mappus. He had some qualities you know and with those qualities came some questionable theories at best he was wealthy he was white he was male he was overly religious and of course he was british so that's not the best combination as we know you know and that hasn't worked out well in history but his concept of overpopulation uh being the thing that ends humanity uh, it i just i just i didn't like it you know i didn't like it uh he had it's you know he had an issue with poor like people just multiplying like that wasn't his issue his bigger issue i i think would have been people who couldn't afford to feed themselves Continuing to multiply, so it was more—it was more just poor people, you know. And then his grand solution for that would have been not what I would have thought about. Now, I—I personally, if I was trying to solve the problem of poor people not being able to feed themselves, I would have used some of that leftover Atlantic slave trade money, and you know, help people to not be so poor, but me said self-control would work better. Self-control. People were like, no, what about contraceptives, you know? Just let them have less babies or choose not to have any babies at all. He was like, nah, that would stop a lot of other people from having children. And we need children, you know? He was like, "No how about a war you know a war gets rid of a lot of people we send some of them off to war and they die that that that's great you know or famine <laughs> it sounds really stupid but these are the these are the these are the experts giving their opinions right i it makes me think you know is it illegal to say that you like or support socialism no i i don't think it is because a lot of countries actually um even if they're not fully socialist states they utilize a lot of socialist concepts and that's different from communism just just by the way it's just that i hate the fact that poor people just get the blame for literally everything wrong in society even though it's it's not their fault that they're poor is if we as in people who could afford to take care of them actually take care of them, then poverty would actually just go away, you know? Uh when society in general we're looking for a solution to something we focus so much on the symptom of the problem instead of actually trying to eliminate permanently eliminate the problem itself it just is so backward and then it leaves this dark this dark kind of fuzzy area for people to kind of just come in and just exploit people you know, just exploit them more, because they could do that, if they have the power, they could do that, and then claim it, you know, I'm trying to help them by providing opportunities, no, you're not, you just, you just taking advantage of a situation, that could easily be solved, and in many instances, we just kind of, we kind of just choose to like, get rid of the existing batch of problem <laughs> people, and there's always going to be another batch if we don't actually fix the issue uh every everybody kind of just wants this perfect society but mm, there's no such thing as perfect first of all but if it is we want close to perfect ideal for me mm, that would require a, a lot more socialism you know the mainly part where you know, we focus on disenfranchised people, you know, help them to get things for free, you know, Uh, the vulnerable people is who we should be taking care of. And I just, I don't, I don't see the reason, I don't see the reason, I don't see the reason why people should have billions of dollars in their bank accounts unless they're using the money to actually help other people and people have the people have been discussing this for a while now and a lot of people will kind of defend billionaires like oh my god they work so hard for their money and they should get to do whatever they want with it and then somebody pointed out to me recently the people who defend that like by like saying you know, billionaires should keep all their money if they want to are people who kind of they hope that one day they get to be a billionaire and nobody could dictate how they spend their money and I. None of you're gonna get to be billionaires i mean you might but that's extremely far-fetched i feel it's you however in your mind that you're gonna try to hoard as much money as possible and you probably shouldn't be a billionaire either you know and i was listening to this podcast and the person brought up this excellent point and it really made me think about things differently they were saying the only right thing to do if you were to win like a huge sum of money in the lottery like let's say close to a billion dollars or like a like a really big set of money that you just won't be able to spend in your lifetime the best thing to do with that is to just give it away and i was like what <laughs> give it away people got bills you know like when you think about yourself winning the lottery, you know, you're sitting on an for this person, boy, I could do that $8 million right now. Are you thinking about the house you're going to buy and the first car you're going to own and you want to help your mother finish the, you know, fix the roof? And, you know, like, I have so many big plans. You want to go back to school. You want to give, you know, you, you think, oh, yeah, i going to give some to charity. You know, but in the back of your mind, that's like, and it's like, oh, I just want to go and buy that house. You know, it's like you have big dreams for yourself, and a lot of things could be fixed with money. But then, when he explained it and he said, like, the best thing to do is just give it to him, I'm like, damn, that actually makes a lot of sense. Now, keep in mind, one thing I was also thinking about is that this person is American, and one of their points was when you win your lottery, it kind of changes your relationships. People become kind of angry, they always come in there for money. If you tell them no, it's like, uh. But if you give it away, then that kind of eliminates that issue to an extent. But in Sharonab, sure, you have that so you can win the lottery and nobody can know. You know? But let's just say same scenario, you win the money. Giving it away means it don't mean that you don't want to do anything for yourself. Obviously, you, you want to do something for yourself, but it's just it'll be different in terms of you were saying you could set up like an organization that helps other people invest in your money into that and you're paying yourself a regular salary that could help you get by in terms of being financially secure so you're paying yourself a salary each month that could cover all your bills all your food um entertainment like anything that you would need on a month-to-month basis you're getting a salary for that out of the money and well i guess out of the money that out of the company that you would have made And then everything else is going towards whether it's feeding the poor, sheltering the homeless. Like, whatever goal it is that you want that company to have, that's where the bulk of the money is going. So it's not most for me and some for charity. It's some for you just to keep you going and everything else to fixing problems that you know you are able to fix. And I was like, that is genius. That is super genius. And if I was ever to win your lottery, I think, like, I genuinely think that's something that I, I definitely want to do. So, I don't know. you all going let me know. Um, if you win your lottery, what you going to do? Are you going to keep all for yourself or keep most for yourself and then sprinkle some on something charitable? Or, you know, giving it some, some thought and you're interested in giving most of it away? Just keeping just what you need for yourself. of the world's issues could be solved with something as simple as when I say simple like I don't mean easy it's not gonna be easy but it's a simple concept of redistribution of wealth that's why I don't like the idea of people just having a billion dollars all you know certain countries just having money and having. Like other countries in debt because of you know things that they themselves would have caused and even within within countries governments pretty much just focus on like i said treating symptoms and they will ignore they will like fully ignore the root cause of these problems and that means that it will always be around something i feel quite passionate about Uh, is sex education in schools it is something that could fix so many problems in schools so many problems in society in general by just having a comprehensive sex education course from as early as possible and when i was in secondary school I, i remember the attempt sex education it was it was okay but it was it was more fair f- inducing than it was educational you know uh i went uh i would say religious school so i i didn't expect anything at all to be honest but they attempted to do something and it worked for some and it did not work for others and it worked in certain aspects and it certainly didn't do a thing for other aspects uh meaning there's just amount of fear that young people just don't think about when you eliminate uh certain aspects of um of sex right they think there's only one way to you know, be in danger, right? And there's only a few dangerous things out there, but that's not the case. But anyway, when I started working at a school at a regular government owned, run, manage whatever school, I was shocked to say the least, at their um approach to the subject. And it is a subject. It is I it's there's a syllabus and everything dedicated to you know this issue and the problem at least where i was working was that nobody was interested in actually teaching the syllabus for personal reasons mostly um yeah it was disturbing (laughs) it was disturbing i had just started working there and i went to the well at least i went to my first staff meeting and a topic that came up was the syllabus of sex education if it is that they were going to get teachers to volunteer, yes, volunteer to teach the subject and to my surprise nobody was interested in actually doing the course and the reasoning that they gave for not wanting to teach the course was what was shocking to me um a lot of things that they said that i would definitely just i'll never forget to be honest and it just shows that the problem is not so much that um that things are not like there available i guess to the material isn't available that's not the case the case is that Nobody is interested in taking the responsibility of educating these children because they don't want they don't want to have to face they don't want to have to come to face with certain topics, right? Things like sexuality was a big issue, especially around the older staff members. they were not interested in teaching anything that they considered to be. out of the ordinary and like in speaking to a co-worker of mine who was actually my age like, my age to so somebody young um they were saying to me that they were kind of scared of a perkiny subject and um they were just saying that they just don't they just wouldn't know how to how to address things like Abuse, like if they were to bring up the topic, and then there was a child in the class who you know wasn't dealing well, they just didn't know how. They just didn't know how they how they would deal with. It. I I simply told them that's why they have training. <laughs> that's why they have training. Um. Nobody's going to spring you in a class and just show you, tell you, yeah, deliver that. You know, it, there's there's training that they provide for the particular course and. That's why it's it's volun based on volunteer. So everybody obviously won't be thrown into it. It's your choice. It's just my problem is that nobody chose it. <laughs> like nobody chose to actually teach the course and they were just like, Okay, well nobody wants to teach it. Okay, cool. End of discussion. Next point, I'm like, huh? What? What is going on here? And I, I, I just felt extremely bothered. Felt extremely bothered because I just know that just because you're uncomfortable talking about something, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk about it. You know, these children are relying on teachers most of the time to get that guidance because some parents, most parents, I suppose, in having that discussion, at least not in the details that are necessary to properly guide them. Most parents have a one track mind, don't do it. And then it just leaves so much room for for nonsense to happen, you know? And our problem that we have just in general society is just a willingness to change. We hate doing things that we're not accustomed to doing. And then the you people that suffer is the ones who come after us because we're done stuck in the ways, whatever. Uh, I say we, I mean myself. I mean the general we. We're already stuck in our ways, and we're cool living that life. We've already accepted consequences of that, but the ones who are coming up after, they don't know what they're going to enter into. They don't know the world. They're coming up into with people who stuck in their ways and refuse to change and just do better. And obviously, this doesn't solve every problem, but it solves somebody most heartbreaking problems I guess in society and it's just to me to me it should be a mandatory thing it should not be reliant on on parents giving permission to be educated on certain things like you already sign up for your for your child to go to school everything that in school coming with it and then I think it should be a lot easier for people who not necessarily Um, anybody but people who are more equipped to teach the subject and might not necessarily be teachers to be able to deliver the course because it doesn't seem as though people who are already in the system at least from what i noticed where i was working doesn't seem like there are a lot of people who are in the system who are interested in teaching the subject and just to say well okay cool you're not interested but just move on it's just i i just don't think that 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 is good that's that's not enough um i don't know who to blame the ministry sure <laughs> they could take somebody blame for sh- yeah definitely school management definitely um uh parents definitely because you should be interested in your child being fully educated on every subject but it's a shared blame because if you blame one person and don't blame the other to me that's just that i ain't, that ain't fixing anything i think just we in general have to be more responsible Uh, for our kids, and for ourselves, for each other, and be able to take in front, (laughs) you know, before things go bad, and to me, this is a a easy thing to solve, it's an easy place to start, I'm just waiting for one opportunity to be able to say, okay, here's what we need to do, and be able to do it, and I feel like Government come, government go, management come, management go, everybody is just dancing around this issue and I I, I would like the opportunity to be able to say, okay, no more dancing, There we get things going, you know? And I feel like a lot of people feel that way, it's just that there's only so much that you could do from the outside, it's a really powerless place to stand. When you want to make change, then you you just can't. It's just such a strange thing to see... People so stuck in their ways. People so inflexible, while living in such a ever-changing environment. Like the world around us is constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. And then there are people who are just so stiff. You know, we just wonder, like, what is, why are you here? You know, like even in geography, there's a model that shows how economic economic development is constantly changing and along with that population also goes through a series of changes and that model is the demographic transition model or the dtm so the trend is basically this um with time a population increases and as they become more industrialized uh that growth continues upward and then eventually levels out right plateaus So the model shows that in the beginning stages, there's high birth rates and high death rates. So it starts off with a a stagnation of a sort. And then as deaths begin to go down, decrease, the population begins to grow. And then by the final stages, uh, the model shows that births has decreased significantly. And then it becomes just above death. Uh, on the lower end sorry population doesn't decrease uh, but it increases at a steady rate or it doesn't increase at all it just becomes steady right so stage one would be the example that we would have spoken of before in 1900s where there's a lot of deaths a lot of births but things are pretty much stagnant and then after that you know big decrease in deaths population starts to go up right and then up until like 2010 when they began like a steadying of population and that would be stage four where pretty much where we're existing now uh as a world as a a globe um everything is kind of just steadying out you know it's plateauing um there are some diagrams that accompany the dtm That show the structure of populations, you know, things like percentage of male to female, uh, dependent versus uh, working person's age, so young versus old, that kind of thing. And then uh, populations can change by other means. Uh, Even if it's not as a result of reproduction uh, or death, there could still be an increase or decrease based on migration. If the immigration rate is higher than the emigration rate, the population increases, and of course, vice versa. Uh, There are the things that you consider in terms of uh, what makes a population bigger or denser. And of course, in when you talk about population, you always have to talk about density and distribution because uh, those things actually affect other factors such, such as immigration um right here in Trinidad the majority of the population lives in specific regions so the foot of the northern range uh such as of Spain, uh, Arima that was, those are the highest uh population density densities and then Chaguanas and San Fernando top right top of the charts um aside from the history of sharan tobago playing a role in the way for the settlements form uh there are natural things uh, in terms of like relief so flatland is easier to build houses on it's easier to farm on it's easier to develop a city so you will see higher populations in flatland areas compared to Oh, oh, Of course, there are some exceptions, but that is more of a historical issue than it is a, a physical issue. Other uh, than it's climate, uh, microclimate is basically small pockets of climate differences within a specific country or area or region. So the microclimate in Trinidad means that some parts of the island are significantly more wet than others and then that wetness uh rain extra rain would deter some people and it would attract others depending on what it is that they wanted the land for so wetter soil in certain areas would attract more farmers and it would attract people who wanted to build houses and that kind of thing soils soils on flat land actually more fertile because uh, when rain falls soil comes down from Fertile mo- mountains, so the northern range, the central range. And then these alluvial soils, what they call them, create for farming. Highly fertile. And that's actually why you would see a lot of cocoa plantations in, uh, just at the foot of mountains. Areas like Santa Cruz. Uh, because the soil is so rich there because of runoff. Um, Things like natural resources. San Fernando 1.14 would have developed... Uh, because of the oil industry, that would have drawn a lot of uh workers to that f- far southern region of the of the island, and then of course accessibility plays a major, major, major role here and in anywhere in the world. Uh, transportation makes moving about super easy, um, and it makes it easier to choose where you want to live. So. Many of us would kind of think of the ideal place to live in Trinidad, and uh, for for more, for some people, I guess it would be being able to access different points of shopping, uh, different shopping areas, areas that are easy to get jobs in, a lot of business opportunities. So, uh, what comes to mind is the priority bus route that could kind of take you in between Port of Spain, the capital, uh, as far east as east can get and then you have different areas in between where you can have shopping plazas the mall that kind of thing so a major transport hub is an attraction for larger populations and then in larger countries you see the same trend capitals are usually more densely populated than the countryside just because there are more things to access in the city if you're a geography student uh you should definitely learn the different formulae that goes along with population so birth rate, death rate, uh, natural increase, um, how to calculate population growth, things like that and you can find that in any, any textbook um, and you need to learn the demographic transition model by heart as much points as you can in terms of describing different stages and how to relate that back to you know different case studies as you need to learn it well places that are densely populated will if, if things are not going well for this majority of people that could um that can that could influence the immigration rate and emigration rate more so um We have a a problem with immigrants meaning we just don't know how to treat them uh it's it's disgusting right we tend to shake our heads at the way other countries deal with immigrants but from what i have noticed if given the same opportunity um we might do the same thing eh? um that's why I think it's important to think about why people people leave their countries in the first place uh, it should be a little more understanding and of course extremely accommodating uh, the reason why people leave the con- their country uh they we call them push and pull factors in geography and when there's a large huge influx of migrants especially from one particular country or a small region is a very big chance that it's a push factor at play the differences between the two pull factors are usually positive things uh and it's based on attraction so what what is drawing you there all right it's more of a selective thing it will determine exactly where you're going as opposed to why you're leaving. Um, why you're leaving is more of a push factor. These are these are negative things. And it could be as simple as just not being able to get a job. Or something extreme like social unrest or a famine. That kind of thing. And these to be applied to cities as well as countries. Say like the reason you leave your community in the north to go you know deep south or you leave where you are far west to come a little more east or a little more central right um it could be simple and it could not right? um so i laugh i laugh i honestly laugh when i hear trinalians complain about migrants because i just know <laughs> i just know if you're my age close to my age you Probably have at least three uncles and probably a grandmother who would have left the country. Let me say eighties, nineties, went to the states, Canada, and if they're lucky enough to London, and just never came back, like just never came back. And if you're older, then you were probably the one who you know you gave money, you gave visa, and then if if you're here, is it you get deported or? You had a good life I know you come back to enjoy enjoy the sun and and whatever else china has to offer and if it is that you don't fit either of those categories either you know you just never either it's no either you just it's just sound dumb and it's hilarious because nobody here in Trinidad owns the deed the, the land <laughs> like we don't own the we don't own the land you know we might have a few rights, you know. You know, you might be allowed to say, know yeah, my private property, but at the end of the day, it's not yours. You know, you can't take it with you when you go in. And just we would love to have regulated immigration. Yeah, sure. We'd like to say who comes in, how many comes in the borders, that kind of thing. We we would love that, ideally. But it still it doesn't give anybody the right to treat anybody as less than human because you feel more entitled to live in here than they do, you know the Venezuelan crisis could literally happen to anybody And more so to and Tobago be because our situation is very similar. um and to me, that's not the only reason to have compassion is not to say, well, oh yeah, that could be us, you know, I think we need to just have compassion for people regardless all right but the thing is people who have that sense of security and that stability you know you have all your needs met you tend to just forget the needs of other people you just forget that and you just need a little more reminding so that's why i say that could be us you know that's just the reminder so basically what happened with uh venezuela was in 2014 their gdp went Down like all the way down, and then most people just couldn't afford food. And the country just started running out of resources. Uh Venezuela was is mainly dependent on income from the oil industry. And when oil prices started going down, things became a lot harder to afford. That plus a lot of political corruption. And then, this mismanagement of the economy was that was a, a recipe for for disaster, right? And then the icing on the cake the US government started sanctioning the Venezuelan oil industry and the gold mining industry, and then they cut off the central bank of Venezuela so that they could no longer access the US dollar. And we know the kind of power the US dollar has out in pretty much every market even as a consumer having us dollars means you could do a lot more than somebody who doesn't have it and then the, the, the tables just pretty much turned really quickly and that happens when you're in the oil industry and you're extremely dependent on it the most unfortunate thing is the government itself people are in the highest positions they are not the ones suffer it's the people on the street the everyday guy the average citizen right Venezuela has had a very very colorful and prosperous history associated with the oil industry um they were number two amongst petroleum exporters but just so many things just went wrong and that's why things are the way they are they didn't have a productive agricultural sector. Mainly because uh, land was owned by a very, very, very small portion of rich and very powerful families. And they were just interested in oil money, you know. And they held on to pretty much a large percentage of the profits from that. And then when oil prices started to drop drastically it's very common for countries to go into debt um especially if you have social services that are subsidized or free um if you keep paying for them then your money has to come from somewhere and then our great savior the imf happily lends you that money you know and then gives you more debt so the hope is when you get this money okay you're gonna improve conditions for the lives of everybody uh You're going to fix things here, you're going to make things better, you're going to make things more efficient, and then you're going to bounce back. But the money that you're getting is not free, (laughs) right? You can't just spend it the way you want to spend it. There are rules, and of course there is interest, and you have to pay it back. So that means you need that money fast. And unfortunately, oil money is good money. That helps you pay things back faster. Than a lot of other industries, especially if you don't have other in- other industries. Um, the former president Chavez tried tried to earn money selling oil cheaper to other countries, and then tried to save money by not spending much or any at all on maintaining the oil industry, like in the facilities in the oil industry. Right, And then eventually, things just got so run down, they started to lose money. You know, things going wrong, they can't have the proper output to make the money that they wanted to make. Then a new president comes in, at a very difficult time. I really had no idea how to dig the country out of the mountain of problems. Especially because oil prices were still going down. And then citizens are extremely uneasy right yeah agitated because things are things are getting bad um then he didn't he didn't have a good idea (laughs) His good idea this you know his solution was to basically kind of sweep the ice under the fridge you know uh opposition leaders were being arrested journalists covering problems were arrested and despite people's blatant disapproval for his campaign he somehow won the election by a lot and it was very questionable. A lot of people tried to intervene, but things are still going on. So it's a it's an ongoing struggle. So I think under those conditions with that history of things just going wrong over and over, anybody, anybody who wanted to survive would leave. And as i was reading up on this and writing things down taking notes i just kept picturing this is Trinidad at a larger scale and if things hit the fan <laughs> the people that are in power regardless of what party you belong to or representing at that time they are not going to be the ones suffering. It is us. It is your friends and your family, people who are living in conditions the same as you, who are going to feel everything going to be like exposed to the nonsense. And to me, that's very that's just, that's really scary. And obviously, I'm not trying to be all. Ugh, doom and gloom and yeah things are bad, impending poverty and suffering for all of us i just want to say you know like if we just keep going on the same path we're completely or like majorly dependent on oil and gas for income with the systems that we already have in place that we know <laughs> does make less money than it is spend, right things ain't looking too good because it's that Plus the corruption that we know exists. We are pretty much walking in line with Venezuela. And then what? What are you going to do? Are you going to migrate? Most of us won't be able to. Most of us can't afford to pick up ourselves and our children. Our grandmothers and whoever. And just, just go. Right? Um, And then where where are we going to go? <laughs> Um y'all you think you're going to be welcomed with open arms into other people's countries. That's the sad reality, you know. I didn't even know this, like as of 2020, our <clears throat> our national debt is over thirteen billion US dollars. <sighs> 13 US dollars which is literally like one billion less than Jamaica and a third more than a third of Venezuela's debt and we laugh I've seen in in those arguments people trying to be like oh yeah my country's the best your country's the (laughs) worst people always mention our our superiority over other countries I was like, we're not that better (laughs) off. We're not much better off. Like, the tables could literally turn on you any moment. Any moment. And we need to just do better. We need to do better to fix the problems that we actually have instead of just dancing around the issue you know, we are the ones who live in this country, and we are the ones who have to deal with everything that happens to us, and happens to, uh, within the country, and that kind of thing, like, we are, we are the ones who are responsible for each other, so, you just need to do better, but really, on a global scale, you know, need to treat immigrants the way we would want to be treated, in fact, We need to treat everybody the way we want to be treated. You know, love thy neighbor and all that good stuff. Even the ones you know you don't like, you know, treat them still with compassion. Because even the wrongdoers, even the wrongdoers need mercy, you know? Even the wrongdoers. So, thank you for listening to all of this. I hope you learned a lot. And really hoping that you stick around for more. You know. Uh next episode I'll probably, probably be piggybacking off this topic. Um, getting into some urbanization, you know. Um don't forget to share this with your friends. You could send me questions or you could comment things on Instagram. You can tweet uh to my GeoGems pod account um so yeah you can send me anything comments questions reading material cool with that too have a safe time you know wherever you are listening to this bye